In today's episode, we open our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 22. The Holy Spirit invites us into an intimate moment as David pours out an heartfelt psalm of praise. He also gives thanksgiving to God. This chapter beautifully encapsulates David's personal journey, marked by triumphant victories, profound losses, but an unshakable faith. David's song gives a stirring testament of God's unwavering protection, his deliverance from enemies, and his guidance through the trials and triumphs of life. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Wednesday, July 12th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is made possible by listeners like you who contribute to KFUO. We're also grateful for a generous gift from the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. LHF does important work for translating and publishing and handing out Lutheran books and materials that stick close to the Bible focus on Jesus, and connect with the teachings of the Reformation. And the best part? LHF gives all these out for free to pastors, missionaries, and those who need them. To know more about what LHF does and how you can join them in this important work, have a look at their website at lhfmissions.org. That's plural at the end. Head over to lhfmissions.org. In the meantime, please join me in welcoming my guest this morning, to help us divide and discern this antepenultimate chapter in 2 Samuel, it's the Reverend Dr. Brian Ketchelmeyer, pastor of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas. Good morning, Pastor Ketchelmeyer, and welcome oh, back great to the to program. Great to be here. Great to be on this program. Yeah, exciting to have you. How have things been going since we last talked? Well, uh, life is uh, strange, and uh, life goes in different twists and turns, but God is good, and so I got that going for me, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah, you can't beat that. You know, it's hard to complain when you consider the glories ahead, and I'm certainly grateful to have you here for this uh, particular chapter because, well, this one's a little different. This one is basically Psalm 18, but stuck right here in Second Samuel. In fact, I hope we discuss whether or not this is just a copy or or how it fits into the Psalms and David's writings. But yeah, this is going to, we haven't covered any Psalms uh, so far. And yeah, here it is right here at the next to the next to the last chapter. Well, good. Yeah. Looking forward to having you on there. Well, why don't you start us off with prayer before we keep going? All right, let us pray. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, we give thanks to you through Jesus Christ, your dear son, that you've given us the gift of yet another day. Oh Lord, we pray that you would bless us this day, bless us with ears to hear your voice, with eyes to see your son Jesus in the scriptures, and with hearts to believe uh, all the promises fulfilled in him. Send forth your Holy Spirit upon us, O oh Lord, as we continue to grow in the knowledge of salvation. We ask as the name of Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Well, as we come to this particular chapter and this Song of David, which again, uh, we find a very similar version over in the Psalms, uh, it seems like David wrote this probably later in his life, considering he's reflecting on all the amazing trials and victories that God had given him. Um, how, do you, how do you figure this Psalm in the whole narrative of David? Well, it is a psalm, of course, of thanksgiving, of what God has done for him, 
which ultimately is pointing to what God does for us in Jesus. So ultimately, with all the Psalms, we are looking to the one who is greater than David, the true David, the son of David, the one who is the high priest. So with all the Psalms, David is, of course, speaking, but the one who is speaking through David is going to be Jesus. And so we want to look at Jesus as the one who speaks this purely and truly. And we also want to see how the Psalm speaks of Jesus and how this uh, this helps us to set our eyes upon our Lord and Savior, Christ. And in this, you, you have that deliverance from uh, the Philistines, uh, deliverance from the rebellions of Absalom and, and of course, Sheba, Sheba uh, that, that you have these things going on in uh, David's life. But uh, as the world is just uh, going uh, haywire around David, we know that God promises to work together for the good in all things for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. So it's in the psalm where he can cry out to God and he can rejoice that God is the one who delivers. God is the one who saves. God is the one who rescues from enemies. And those enemies are the ones who are trying to prevent uh, David to be king and, of course, trying to prevent, ultimately, the, the kingdom of God, the, the true David, the son of David upon the throne. And that, that's the way of the world. It's the, all the kingdoms of the world are in animosity with the kingdom of God. Uh, they're in league with the devil, trying to prevent God's kingdom from coming. But ultimately, we know that God's kingdom comes through the proclamation of the word. So it's the preaching of the word. Hearing the word is how we receive faith in Jesus, hearing the word of Jesus. So this is what we see here. But we also notice that there, there's this distinction between the enemies of David, the ones who are in animosity, and also Saul, on the other hand, because uh, David always saw Saul as one who was anointed, as David is anointed, which, of course, is the Mashiach, the Messiah, the one who is anointed, looking for the ultimate one, who is the anointed one, which is Christ himself. And, and so there is a distinction between uh, Saul, he had been delivered from the hand of Saul, who was Yahweh's anointed, and now David is Yahweh's anointed, and we wait for the anointed King Christ. So a lot of that just is, is kind of the background of what's going on here. This this kind of uh, David's coming together with this whole thanksgiving and focusing the attention on the deliverance that Yahweh alone delivers. Well, it's certainly the message of God's activity on earth, and, and the presence of this particular song, or psalm, however you want to look at it, in two different places in the Scriptures— I think it suggests an importance in the Israelite tradition. I mean, Psalm 18 was a royal psalm, so I'm assuming that this is used during formal occasions, worship settings, commemorations maybe, anniversaries of David's victories, or maybe even when he was enthroned. Um, but we we is the reason why a, a psalm like this, so connected not only to the worship life of the people, but also to the narrative of David's life, I mean, is that because of its its overarching theme of deliverance that we we see that they find so such importance in it? I mean, it begins with distress and then divine intervention, then deliverance, and then of course protection and victory. It, it seems like uh, it's something that in the narrative of David, I don't want to say tacked on, but it's included here at the end as almost a, 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 a nightcap to the to the whole narrative itself. 
Yeah. And of course, you're going through that transition from David to Solomon. David, of course, wanted to have the the temple. He wanted to build the temple, but it's, of course, his son Solomon who's going to build the temple. I mean, you go back to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7 with the promise of the son of David, who's going to be uh, the dynasty, the kingdom that, that God is going to build for David, which, of course, is pointing to Jesus. So it's his transition from David as king to looking forward to the temple. And remember, at the temple, this is where David is is writing these psalms as a prophet, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, to be sung at the temple. I mean, so these are going to be songs that are sung at the temple, where the true king of kings is, of course, present, the promised presence of God there at the altar, uh, who is enthroned above, above the wings of the cherubim on the, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the, that is the Ark of the Testimony, the mercy seat. I mean, that's the throne where the king of kings uh, resides. I mean, we, we of course, we, we see this in Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah the prophet is called, and you have Uzziah dies, but yet the king is still there. So all these sons of David come and go, but we know the true king is still sitting upon the throne, and it's at that temple where you can be promised of that presence where God is with us in this life, bringing his kingdom to earth through the proclamation of the person and work of Christ. So I, I think it's it's definitely this, this transition from David as the king, uh, way for the temple that his son Solomon will build, and that will be that promised presence where, where you have David uh, leading the, the choir, if you will, the Levitical choir in the singing, and of course the people then singing and chanting these, these psalms of, of who God is, appraising and proclaiming his name uh, to the ends of the earth. Now why don't we just read a few verses to uh, kind of warm up to the pool here, starting with chapter 22, verse 1. And David spoke to Yahweh the words of this song on the day when Yahweh delivered him from the hands of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, Yahweh is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my rock, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior, you save me from violence. I call upon Yahweh who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. Let's, uh, let's pause right there. So Yahweh is my rock, my fortress, deliverer, the one in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my savior, and he's worthy to be praised. Uh, David, we've seen throughout his life, is not shy about recognizing the sovereignty and the divinity of God, right? He's, he's constantly looking toward God, even in the midst of his own sins, even when he's convicted, he makes sure that his face is turned toward God. And so he uh, understandably begins this with a word of praise. Yeah, well, I think that when we, we look at this this song, if you will, a song of praise, a psalm, and, and kind of it's a framework of what we had at the very beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 2, because it's echoing uh, the same words of, of the song of Hannah. I mean, so when Hannah is proclaiming and singing about God, I mean, she starts off, which, of course, that that song will be echoed in Mary's song, where you rejoice in God, my Savior. I mean, my soul magnifies the Lord. But in Hannah's song, back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, uh, Hannah says, My heart exalts in Yahweh, my strength is exalted in Yahweh, my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. 
There is none holy like you, Yahweh. There is none besides you. There is no rock like you. I mean, so you have a lot of the same imagery that Hannah is using, even the horn of salvation, which, of course, in the New Testament, in the Canticle of Zechariah, he'll talk about how God has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Uh, this, of course, is pointing to uh, the Christ, the, the one who we are waiting for, the rock, the fortress, the one who delivers us, the one who is my God, the one one who I take refuge in, the one who is my shield. I mean, even this language of shield, uh, this goes back to Abraham when Yahweh appears to Abraham. And of course, whenever Yahweh appears to Abraham, this is the second person of the Holy Trinity, the spokesman, the eternal word of God. And Abraham uh, confesses that Yahweh is his shield, the one who defends us, the, the one who protects us, the one who, who keeps us and guards us in this life. So, I mean, all this language of a stronghold, of a refuge, uh, of a Savior. Every time we, we have the language of a Savior or even this, this verbal action of save, to be saved from violence, uh, I mean, th this whole language of Savior and salvation and save, deliverer, deliverance, I mean, all of this is pointing to the person and work of Christ, the one who comes to rescue us, deliver us, and save us from our enemies, and ultimately the enemy of enemies, or the true enemy, if you will, is Satan himself, the tyrant of tyrants. And, and like I said at the beginning, all these kingdoms of the earth are in league with the devil trying to prevent God's kingdom from coming. And how do they do that? By trying to silence the voice that rejoices in the person and work of Christ. And so the kingdoms of the earth with the devil are trying to blind people and, and stop the ears from hearing this wonderful song of salvation, though that we learn of the rock of our salvation, the one that we take refuge in. So all this proclamation up front, this praising, is declaring who God is and what God has done and what God promises to do because he is a shield, he is a savior, he is a rock, he is a refuge. I mean, this is who my God is, that's that confession of faith. Not the gods of the world, not the imagination of the heart, not the, the false gods, uh, what people imagine, so that's a false image, what they think God is like, but the true God, the living God, who is the creator of all things and the redeemer of all things, the one who takes upon creation himself, who takes upon a body uh, so that that body itself can suffer and die, and then, of course, be raised from the dead, being saved, if you will, from the jaws of death and delivered from Satan himself. Let's put ourselves in the place of the, the guy who's going to open up a, a worship a house of worship, a church, whatever you want to call it, and you want to appeal to this generation. So your goal is to bring people into your to your church, and you want to frame a message that something that that they're going to resonate with. Do you think, brother, that the people today are going to resonate with this type of message? Notice how it's all passive, right? Yahweh or God is a rock. He's a fortress. He delivers me. He's somewhere where I can hide. He's a horn of my salvation. He's my refuge. So we have God as the Savior, but do you think people today, the modern man or maybe man throughout history, has really connected with that message of needing saved? Or alternatively, do you see that man is, is much more interested in using God as a weapon in his life to help him defeat things, but not necessarily as in a passive way. He wants to, he wants a faith that he can kind of grab hold of and control. 
does what I'm asking make sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, of course, uh, the devil himself is very deceitful. He's a liar, the father of lies since the beginning. So when he slithered in, the, the serpent's the one who brings doubt into God's word. So, of course, uh, quote-unquote modern man is a product of the, the fallen human nature. Uh, and the modern man is a fallen creation, is a son of Adam, who by nature is an enemy of God. Uh, by nature, uh, hates God's word and hates God's name and doesn't want to hear God's word at all. I mean, so we, we have to have that understanding spiritually that the the person, the average human being, uh, already is, like all of us, born in sin, conceived in sin. We have that original sin inherited from Adam and Eve. And, and so, of course, the devil's going to want to keep us in that situation. And so throughout our life, there's going to be different circumstances and trials and tribulations. Each human being is suffering and has a sickness. Each human being has sorrow and sadness, and all these things happen. And, and so there is this this kind of, you're looking for something to, quote unquote, save you. I mean, to deliver you from the condition that you're in. But the devil, of course, is so uh, tempting and so, of course, tricky that he blinds people to just keep trying to find some other way out, some way out to save you from your sorrow, your sadness, or your sickness, or or whatever it may be. So there is an understanding of trying to be rescued from something. I mean, somebody who is is looking to uh, narcotics, to pills, to uh, to drinking, to uh, uh, sexual immorality or something is trying to fill that void and trying to to bring the person to a feeling of happiness. I, I think that that's part of the problem is in society is you're you're looking for a deity that's going to make you happy. That's going to be the issue is you want a deity that's going to tell you what you want to hear. You've got itching ears and that's what you're looking for. But what, what the scripture is giving to us is delivering for us the living God, the living God who says, I come into creation in the midst of suffering and sorrow and sadness, and I'm the one who myself Jesus takes upon a body so that he can be the suffering servant, so he can suffer for us and suffer with us uh, and take upon that cross even to the point uh, of death, that death on the cross. But yet he gives to us this, this pattern of, of the joy in the midst of suffering. So that when in this life, when we, we want to be saved, we want to be rescued, we want to be delivered from all these things, we see that the only one who can overcome uh, death and the grave and all of this uh, sorrow and sadness and sickness is Jesus, the one who defeats the devil, the one who suffered with us and for us. And it's in that that we, we as Christians have that joy and that comfort so that we know that when there is suffering in life as a Christian, we can look to, to God who gives us the promise that all things work together for the good for those who are called according to his purpose, uh, who love him, that, that, that we have that assurance that in the midst of suffering, we can actually rejoice because we know we are participating in the suffering of Christ. In, in baptism, we're united into the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, of course, the unbeliever doesn't have that. I mean, the unbeliever doesn't have that at all. So all of these, uh, the word of God is, is to be 
preached, proclaimed, to be taught so that it's unpacked so that the individual who doesn't know these words can start to understand these words, and that's through which the Holy Spirit is going to work. I mean, yes, when you use the the, the imagery of a rock, well, what is a rock? you got to figure that out for an unbeliever who's never heard that type of imagery from the Scripture. And, and so it, it's very simple to explain the idea of a rock as one who is stationary, you know, one who is stands firm, uh, one who is not moved, one who is not shaken, and the, the idea of a fortress. I mean, you you could you just have to unpack it. And so the idea of a fortress is it's running for refuge. Uh, you, I mean, you can unpack the imagery of castles or even a bomb shelter or any kind of uh, understanding when calamity happens, like a hurricane or a tornado. You go to a shelter. And so I, I think all of this can easily be unpacked. And that's the beauty of the scripture: is that this imagery is not just for one age. It is a timeless, that it can be used from age to age. But of course, you just, you've got to unpack it. I mean, what does it mean to have a shield, somebody to protect you? I mean, you can even go uh, the route of talk about Captain America and his shield. I mean, these metaphors, these imageries, these illustrations are all over. I definitely think unpacking is required. I guess what in my mind, I was thinking of the person who doesn't feel they need to have a stable rock in their life. They don't need to take refuge from anything. They don't need to be shielded from anything. And then if they're going to be shielded, they're just going to shield themselves. Experiencing loss and law in their life, I think, is is incredibly important for them to appreciate the message. David certainly did in verses 5, 6, and 7. He recounts some of the, the wicked things, the, the law incarnate, so to speak, that he encountered. Uh, verse 5, beginning there. For the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress I called upon Yahweh, to my God I called. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. So David even recounts that it was the the waves of death, destruction, the afterlife, death, that when when he had to face those things in the many and various ways that he did, that 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 call that put him in distress and and it left him with no hope or choice except to call upon God and that's sort of the, the law gospel dynamic that we Lutherans like to promote. But I see that out in the world too. I see people who they don't call upon the Lord because they don't know to or they don't know how to, so to speak but they don't even care to until they face these 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 horrible things in their lives which is typically why a congregation i believe is going to be uh, decades older than the community surrounding it in terms of demographics because people are closer to these great enemies death destruction sheol yeah well i mean we we have to understand that uh, again in order to call out to god to call to god to pray to god to have a conversation and petition god of course requires faith uh, and so it's not just a, a vocalizing words on a page or just reciting a recitation of some kind of a, a petition or prayer. Uh, faith, of course, is is needed because prayer is a manifestation of faith, and faith comes through hearing the word. So you've got to hear the promise that, that God is one who saves. So, for instance, I mean, the psalm itself testifies that David— uh, heard 
the voice of God, that David cried out and God heard his voice, that David heard God's word and, and God hears David's words. And that, that holy uh, conversation, that consecrated conversation, the divine dialogue, and this is exactly what the Psalms are, are trying to do, is trying to, to give to us this divine dialogue, the conversation on how we are to pray, what we are to say, and knowing who God is, then of course gives to us that that promise, and then faith clings to that promise. So David can say that I call upon Yahweh, who is worthy to be praised, and I've been saved from my enemies. So he's giving us kind of this testimony, if you will, of how God, who is Savior, has saved him. And then in that time of distress, the cords of death encompassed me. I mean, this idea of being just wrapped up in these cords, tied up, and there's no way for you to get out, being entangled by Sheol, or the snares, kind of a trap or something, just just catching a hold of you and, and clinging to you and not letting go, that it's in the distress that you understand that need, that need for help, an external help, but something that you can't help yourself. Uh, you need someone else from the outside to come in to help. So this is that cry for help. And, and yeah, there, there's circumstances in life itself. So when the external circumstances of life kind of, they, they, they shake us, they rock us, they kind of, uh, they, they quake and they, they make us shake and we, we don't know what to do because we can't do anything about it. it. It penetrates deep within the conscience and it troubles the conscience. And that conscience, of course, is going to look toward the, the situation that we're in, that we've been separated from the creator. And, and the conscience, of course, is going to cry out and be terrified. It's going to be, uh, uh, it's going to be pricked with, with the, the reality of sin that has created this chasm with God. And so that is that external experience takes place, but it works within the conscience that I, I'm in trouble and I need someone outside. I need someone bigger than me. I need someone bigger than creation. So God, of course, uses these experiences in life, but he gives us the gift of his word so that we know what to pray and what to say when these circumstances happen. Well, in this next section, we are we're seeing that David now is focusing on God's deliverance, or really his intervention, verses 8 through 16. God's power and wrath are, are all against the enemies of his chosen one, and they're vividly displayed by David here. I'm going to read this so that we can think about it, and then we're going to head to break before we talk about it, starting with verse 8. Then the earth reeled and rocked, the foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked, because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy, thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, the coals of fire flamed forth. Yahweh thundered from heaven. And the Most High uttered his voice, and he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, the foundations of the world were laid bare, and are at the rebuke of Yahweh, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. Uh, just a couple of thoughts before, we're not going to get into it deep, but as he moves into this next section here, he displays God's wrath on on just just full vivid <laughs> display. You know, it, it, God is is put forth here as something 
utterly, utterly powerful, but I guess for the average anybody would be terrifying to experience God in these ways. Yeah, and, and so what you see here is this this understanding of creation, and when we talk about kind of a natural knowledge that you can look around creation and you can ascertain that there is somebody who created and designed these things. I mean, you can see creation and say, "Hey, the creation is beautiful. There's wonderful things in creation." But if you continue to look at creation, you also see the ugliness of creation. You you see destruction. You see death, and so you you see that there's something. There's earthquakes. I mean, there's smoke. That, there's fires. I mean, all these things is it's kind of it's creation falling apart. And that, of course, is pointing that there's a problem. There's a problem in creation because there's a rift between creation that's fallen and the creator. And so that natural knowledge just it looks around and it sees all this stuff. So you're using this this creation imagery and the the blasts of God's nostrils. I mean, all these things that you see, the channels of the sea open, the foundations of the earth laid bare. I mean, all these things just falling apart and just total destruction. But this is leading us to a, a, a situation that we're in. And of course, we can only have the answer to our problem with the revealed knowledge of salvation, uh, talking about our Savior. And so that's why David is kind of laying out this pattern in this format, where in verse 6, he was talking about from his temple, he heard my voice. The temple is the place of his promised presence where God is in earth, the creator in the midst of his creation to bring redemption. And all of this is pointing to the incarnation where God, of course, comes to dwell among us as Emmanuel to overcome these things and to restore creation. Well, let's leave it right there. Uh, we'll dig into it more when we come back from break. So folks, don't go anywhere when we return. Uh, Dr. Uh, Ketchelmeyer and I will keep on going through 2 Samuel 22. See you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. With me this morning is the Reverend Dr. Brian Ketchelmeyer, pastor of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas. I just want you folks to know that Thy Strong Word is always within your reach, or at least almost always. If you're in St. Louis, you can tune to AMH50. For those outside of St. Louis, you can subscribe to the show as a podcast. You can download the KFUO radio app, or you can just listen whatever you'd like, live or on your own pace at kfuo.org. And if you want to chat or share some thoughts, or if you have any questions, I'm all ears. You can reach me by dropping an email to pastorboo at gmail.com. 
be sure to spell it right, P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com or by connecting with me on Facebook. Well, Pastor uh, Ketchelmeyer, so before the break, you know, we were just, you were just getting started into um, digging into verses 8 through 16, and here this text is focusing on a divine intervention, right? Uh, God's dramatic intervention on behalf of David, uh, earthquakes, smoke, devouring fire, dark clouds. But you were saying, too, that it really connects uh, God to uh, as the creator of all things, it connects him to the creation so that even those who haven't heard his word can look out and see that there is a God and this God is powerful. Um, is that kind of where you were going? We don't know who the God is unless he reveals himself to us, but even those who look out really are without excuse. Yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, you, you can see that the creation, of course, itself uh, proclaims God's glory. Uh, but th that, of course, only tells you so much. It doesn't tell you about the God who is a Savior or a God who is good. I mean, it just it shows you uh, death and destruction. I mean, this is the ugliness of a fallen creation that we live in. But even in th this this passage itself, where you, you for instance, when you, at verse 14, you say the Most High, Elion. I mean, that's that's the term that Melchizedek would use. And so that's the priest of God Most High. Uh, Melchizedek, of course, pointing us toward a Christ who is of the order of Melchizedek, that you, you have a priest who is a mediator. Uh, this is, of course, what Jesus does in the whole Psalms. He is the true high priest and the true mediator, the only mediator between us and God. So when you have fallen creation falling apart, and you have God who is angry, provoked to anger because of sin, the only way that you can have reconciliation is with a with a mediator. So this is all pointing toward a need, a need that we have in, in this creation. And so that's why you're going to move from that creation falling apart to what David looks at is salvation, as rescuing, as being delivered from the situation that we're in. Well, let's talk about deliverance 17 through 20. He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but Yahweh was my support. He brought me into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Actually, I'm going to add this next section to 21 through 25. Yahweh dealt with me according to my righteousness and according to the cleanness of my hands. He rewarded me for I have kept the ways of Yahweh and have not wickedly departed from my God for all his rules were before me and from his statutes. I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt and Yahweh has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. So we have two sections here, but they're, I think they're striking for, especially for us Lutherans. So the first part, we, we see how God is the rescuer of David and, and God being described in these natural terrors, it's appropriate then that David talks about being drawn out of the waters, being brought out of calamity. But then it turns in verse 21, and it seems that David is uh, claiming sinlessness, right? Is David saying that he's without sin? How do we understand this? 
Well, uh, a couple of things here. First of all, at verse 17, this whole imagery of being drawn out of the many waters. I mean, this goes back, of course, to creation itself, that in the beginning is God, and the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. I mean, it's with water and the Word that creation itself is brought into existence. Uh, when you get into the book of Exodus, it opens up with Moses being drawn out of the waters as a baby child, and he's going to be the one who will deliver pointing to the personal work of Christ uh, in uh, true humanity, or taking upon the human nature, of course, in the incarnation. And also, likewise, in the book of Exodus, when you get to chapter 15, you have the whole Red Sea event, the Exodus itself, when the Israelites are drawn out of the waters. And of course, Pharaoh and his army, the enemies of God, they're the ones who are drown in those waters. And this points ultimately to baptism. I mean, we have being pulled out of the waters in holy baptism, uh, being washed and cleansed, and being made holy in God's sight. Now we are blameless in God's sight because of Christ. Christ gave up his life for the church to cleanse his bride and make her holy. And so we, we have that whole understanding uh, of David rejoicing in the salvation that has taken place, that, that he has been pulled out of the waters. He's been delivered from his enemies. And that's only in that understanding can you get to the point where you're talking about being dealt with in his own righteousness. I mean, primarily, uh, and we need to understand this clearly, that only Jesus, Jesus is the only one who is holy, the only one who is truly righteous. So only the Lord Jesus can truly pray this psalm based upon his own perfect righteousness. He alone is perfectly blameless before the Father. And so you have this whole understanding. It's only Jesus who can truly pray this. But when we are brought into Christ, drawn out of the waters, united with Christ, buried in baptism, crucified with Christ, raised with Christ, our bodies united with his body, that we now are brought together with Christ, that we now have the gift of his righteousness. We are adopted children of God by grace, and his righteousness is imputed to us. It is his righteousness that is it accounted. It's accounted to us as if it were our own. So in that way, we can say, my righteousness, because it is the righteousness of Jesus that belongs to us by faith. He gives it to us as a gift. He gifts us with his righteousness. So then that way, we can stand holy and blameless and righteous and perfect before the Father. But I think also that you, you can look at this on another note, too, that remember, David is in a situation with these rebellions, uh, Absalom, uh, the Philistines, Sheba, you even got with Saul. And, and, and David is saying that he is one who is trying to walk in the ways of the Lord following the rules and the regulations, the Torah, the law of God. I mean, we know that David, of course, obviously, uh, he has committed murder and obviously adultery. He's violated the Ten Commandments, but yet that's forgiven. That's forgiven in Christ. And so you can say, according here in a human way, that 
before others when he's being challenged with Eighth Commandment type stuff and people are bearing false testimony against him, telling lies about him, betraying him, slandering him, and hurting his reputation. He can say, look at my life as pattern after the righteousness of Christ. So obviously before God, the only righteousness that counts is the righteousness of Jesus. And by faith, we are justified and righteous before God. So before God, we're righteous, justified by faith. But before others, okay, this is where others do see the good work. So I, I think that if you you unpack it in that way, I, I think that it's helpful to understand what David's saying. So David's not coming before God and saying, I have my own earned righteousness, that I have actively achieved a righteousness that now earns and merits eternal life. So he's not saying that. Uh, the righteousness that we have by Jesus, of course, is a passive received righteousness by faith. And so he receives that by faith, but then he can say on the horizontal plane amongst others, he is beginning to act in newness of life. Yeah, I'm just thinking, <clears throat> pardon me, I'm just thinking about all that. You know, obviously, as an LCMS pastor, I um, promote the truth that Christ has fulfilled the law for us. I don't see in this particular text a connection that we could make without, of course, understanding the whole testimony of Scripture. And I think that is one of our in our struggles. As we go out and we proclaim the Word to people, it, it often takes—this <laughs> is why I've never thought it's a good idea just to sort of hand someone a Bible as a means of, of, of uh, evangelism, right? Because it takes an understanding in faith, it takes a, a, a root in Christ— to be able to see these things in this way. So I think if you were reading this either outside of faith or with a very weak or immature faith, it's hard not to come away with just the first level reading of the words. Yahweh dealt with me according to my righteousness. And I, I read all the commentaries, and there's plenty out there too that will say things like, well, you know, he was also being accused by things of things by, and this is what you just brought up too, uh, yeah, by uh, yeah. by Saul's people and others, and he's certainly not guilty of those things, and therefore Eighth Commandment reasons. Uh, but I also see, uh, as a result of the Lutheran tradition in part, but Protestantism in general, is that we tend to downplay righteousness as if it's a sin, right? I think of I think of some of Peeper's writing. So it's like, well, it's not just that we should. Um, recognize that our righteousness, the one that earns us any favor before God, is given to us because of Christ, that we know. But sometimes I think we do it at the detriment of understanding that we should still strive to live righteous lives, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Oh, definitely, most assuredly. I mean, this is what we do in the the, the confession of our Lutheran faith, in the apology to the Augsburg Confession, where Melanchthon is stating very clearly that when we're talking about justification through faith alone, we're not talking about go and live wickedly unrepentant lives uh, filled with sin. We're not saying that at all. We're actually teaching the only way that one can actually keep the law. You, you can't keep the law without faith. And so it, it's right. with faith, you're counted righteous before God, and it's always a, a, a new thinking, new acting, new speaking, that the Holy Spirit is indwelling in you, that you are beginning to walk in newness of life. And so it's in that light where David can say something like, I have kept the ways of Yahweh and, and have not wickedly departed from them. <laughs> 
turned aside from God. I mean, so here's David making this for all his rules were before me and from his statutes, I did not turn away. I mean, so we, we know in the life of David that, that, of course, you have the murder and the adultery. We know that. Right. Uh, but we also know that in Christ there is forgiveness and that's not counted against him. That sin was counted against Jesus on the cross. So there is that in in this new life that we have as the baptized, we are daily dying to sin and then daily rising to newness of life to walk in the ways of the Lord. I mean, so yes, we are beginning to act righteously as God alone is truly righteous. Well, and, and the mercy of God is certainly in view with David here, and he even attributes, I believe, in this next uh, stanza or section or whatever you want to call it, he attributes even his righteousness, obviously, to God. I mean, he says that his even the good that he's able to do is, is a result of God's will. At least that's how I read it. Why don't we all read it together? Here we go. Verse 26, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Yahweh, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of Yahweh proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Uh, pausing right there at the end of 31, you know, David certainly has this recognition that it is by God that he's able to have the successes in his life. And it seems pretty clear to me that he recognizes that if you are humble, God uh, is merciful. But if you put yourself over and against God, he's obviously going to be uh, torturous. Um, and and David then, in light of that, certainly isn't going to be boastful in this previous section when he talks about his righteousness. So we can certainly understand that when he says the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, it's not as though he thinks he keeps the law perfectly. Otherwise, he wouldn't be so bold to then recognize that God will uh, will uh, be against those who set themselves up against him. So, yeah, I, I see here that mercy of God really shining forth in the next section. Yeah, and again, it's not because David was merciful, therefore God becomes merciful toward David. Or because right. David was blameless, then God becomes blameless toward David. Or because David was pure, then God is pure toward David. I mean, so the, this whole issue of this distinction between the humble and the haughty, I mean, we're all sinners, all humanity, we're sinners. But the distinction right. is the difference between being a repentant, believing sinner is humble. The unrepentant, unbelieving sinner is haughty. I mean, this is the whole parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector that go to the temple and pray. You know, the Pharisee goes to the, the temple and says, look, God, look what I've done, and I thank you I'm not like that man over there, that tax collector. Now, the tax collector, of course, is humble, and he's the one who just says, Lord, have mercy on me. And Jesus says he's the one who went home justified, is the, the tax collector who said, Lord, have mercy, humbly. Just looking to God is the one who gives mercy, not merited by us, not earned by us, but God bestows it upon us because God is merciful. So the, the key here is that that's the attribute of God. He is merciful. And so any type of, of a method, a man-made method of trying to make God merciful, that's idolatry. I mean, that's worship without God's word. You can't make God merciful. God is merciful. But now, on the other hand, God is provoked to wrath because of sin. Uh, 
Uh, but God is not wrath, but he's provoked to wrath because of sin. And the haughty, the haughty are, are those, the prideful, the arrogant, who don't see their own sin. I mean, that's the Pharisee who goes and brags about all the things that he's done, all the great things that he's done, and thanks God that he's not like the sinner. I mean, so that's the difference between the haughty and the humble. And so David is coming before God as one who is, is humble, recognizing his need of deliverance and salvation, recognizing that he needs uh, God's mercy. And so that's the humility, because God is a lamp uh, who lightens his darkness. God's the one who even exposes our own sin within so that we confess it and say, this too is sin. Well, we're going to look at a larger section now. We're going to look at verses, oh, let's say 32 through 46. Here we go. For who is God but Yahweh, and who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer, and he set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your gentleness made me great. You have a wide, you gave a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them, and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with the strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. Those who hated me, I destroyed them. They looked, but they were none to save. They cried to Yahweh, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from the strife with my people. You kept me from the head of the nations. Uh, people whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. All right, we'll pause there at the end of 46. So here we have David certainly recognizing that uh, God is the one who has made his way blameless in verse 33, but here he is giving credit to God for all his victories throughout his life as he reflects on all the, all the amazing, I guess, military and other victories that, that Yahweh won for him. Yeah, so he, he's giving God the, the glory, that God is the one who has enabled him to serve in his vocation, in his calling, in his place where God has placed him as a soldier. I mean, so that, that's really what, what's taking place here. But but ultimately, you, you see that there's a, a war, a battle that's going on, a physical battle here that points to the greater battle, the spiritual battle, which only, of course, Christ can win. I mean, he is the one who stands for us. He is the the one who is the, the great champion that we have, the victor over the devil. I mean, so we can't defeat the devil. The devil is the enemy of enemies. He's the ultimate enemy, but Jesus is the one who defeats him. But I mean, notice this whole imagery of feet and hands, and I, I can't help but I, I love in the ancient church, they talk about the image of the feet of a deer, because the idea that they have is the picture of the deer jumps up and leaps when the snake comes in the, the field and it crushes the head of the stake. I mean, so the deer's leaping up and with its feet, it's crushing the head of the serpent, which of course is, that's the promise of Jesus, that uh, this seed of the woman, the virgin, is going to crush the serpent's head, but his heel 
is going to be struck. And so when the heel comes down, that's when the, the fangs of the, the head of the snake comes to bite the heel, but that's at the same point that the head of the snake is crushed. So you have this whole understanding that the enemies were all around, they're surrounding him. Uh, and of course, the enemies at the cross are surrounding Jesus and they're crying out to Yahweh, the, the leadership, the, the high priest, the priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they're, they're all praying out to Yahweh that they, they think they're doing a good thing. But of course, Yahweh does not answer them. Yahweh answers Jesus, who cries out on the cross, the Father, forgive them for they know not what they've done. And so Jesus cries out to the cross for deliverance and salvation. And I know that sounds strange, but this is what we have in the book of Hebrews. As a human being, he is put to death in the tomb because of the uh, the ruling of the religious leaders, but God vindicates him in the resurrection so that God hears his cry and God is the one who vindicates him and brings life back uh, from the death. And so this is his whole, you delivered me from the strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations. E even this is that imagery of Jesus ascending then to heaven, sitting at the right hand of God, sending out the apostles and the conversion of the Gentiles, the people whom I had not even known, they, they serve me now. I mean, this is the, the foreigners coming in through the conversion of the gospel message being sent to the ends of the earth. I mean, so we have that whole picture here in Christ, who is the one who brings the kingdom, the eternal kingdom, for he is the true son of David. Let's finish up our text for this morning, which will be the uh, 47 through 51, which is through the end of chapter 22. Here we go. Yahweh lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this I will praise you, O Yahweh, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king, and shows steadfast love to his anointed to David and his offspring forever. I hear there again because of what you were saying earlier, uh, Jesus, you know, ex being exalted above those who rose against him, being delivered from men of violence. I, I hear, uh, I see in those words, Jesus again. And the, But David then, you know, sums up this whole psalm or song by praising God and, and reminding people of his salvation, his anointed, and of course, the covenant, right, to David and his offspring forever. And so again, the, this language of his anointed, his Mashiach, I mean, the Messiah, this is what the Christ is. And so this is all pointing to the promise of the Christ. I mean, that, that's, that's the difference between the temple in Jerusalem that Solomon will build and all the pagan temples that are scattered throughout the land of Canaan. Those other temples do not have the promise of the anointed one, the promise of the Messiah, the promised presence of God for us, the one who will die for us, the one who will atone for our sin and reconcile us, the one who is truly human, truly son of David. Uh, this is the one who will bring that eternal kingdom uh, forever. I mean, th this goes back to, to Psalm 2. I mean, when you're looking at the Psalter, and in Psalm 2, which is attributed to David, you have in Psalm 2, the kings of the earth set themselves up and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his Christ, his anointed, saying, 
as but I mean they're, they're trying to say let's burst the bonds of him Let, let's try to overthrow him but of course it's God his his laughs he says I have set my king on Zion my holy hill I mean so we see in 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 David we see a picture uh, of Jesus David who is of course even he's suffering he's rejected by his own people but yet he is blessed by Yahweh because this is the anointed this is the one that we're waiting for this is the true son well, I think that's where we're going to have to end it. Our show has come to a close, but I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Dr. Brian Ketchelmeyer, pastor of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas. Once again, Pastor, thanks for being on the program. Oh, it's been great to be here. Excellent. Folks, tomorrow when we come back together, we're going to move into chapter 23, the next to last chapter of Second Samuel. And as the epic saga of King David's reign nears its close, we delve into his poignant final testament, the last words of this mighty king, and the chronicling of his legendary 30. That's interesting. These last words of David are a poetic testament to the anointed king's faith and integrity. It marks a pretty fitting prelude to the end of his rule. Of course, it points forward to the everlasting covenant fulfilled by Jesus, and that's what's important. And then, folks, coming on Monday, we start a brand new study with the book of Acts. So be sure to join us and and uh, as we make our way into the New Testament for a little while. I hope you enjoy that. Uh, but until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong work. 